This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, the post-colonial regime in Zimbabwe was determined to literally keep black women in their place. We'll speak with an author who has studied that era. And a new book details how sex was a leading item of political discussion among anti-colonial activists in the Dutch West Indies. But first, before famed black power advocate Stokely Carmichael changed his name to Kwame Touré, he made a big impression on freedom organizations in Africa, some of it good, some not so favorable. Back in 1967, Carmichael took part in several conferences on the continent and offered a critique of how the black liberation movement was going. Toivi Ashiki is a postdoctoral fellow in the sociology department at Vassar College. He wrote an article titled, Black Power and Armed Decolonization in Southern Africa, Stokely Carmichael, the African National Congress of South Africa, and the African Liberation Movement. Stokely Carmichael understood the black power revolution to be global. And I want to emphasize that point is that while it's important to Africa, Africa also is a global entity. Right. And so what Stokely was doing, which is why I began the, the article with two quotes, one from H. Rap Brown and another from ZANU, uh, the Zimbabwean African National Union, is that they conceived of black power. And Kwame Nkrumah himself also wrote a piece called The Spectator of Black Power as a global movement that centered Africa, but also African descended peoples outside of the continent. And so Stokely is important because Stokely, on the, in the first hand, is at that point, 1967, probably the most recognized black power spokesman and activist globally. And so him coming to Dar es Salaam at that time, which I describe as the intellectual hub, if you will, of the African liberation movement, was electric. It was very important. And he was very, very popular amongst many of the leadership of Tanu, as well as many just regular folks, students, young radicals across Dar es Salaam. Also, Che Guevara had just been killed. We had just learned of Che Guevara being killed by the imperialists. And so people were ready for revolution and they wanted to hear messages from the front line. If you look at many of the Tanzanian English newspapers, they are consistently following the Black Rebellion in the United States. They are following the crackdowns by the U.S. government. They're following Sophie Carmichael and SNCC. They're following the Black Panthers, who are just now emerging. They're following Dr. King. They're following everything very, very closely. So Carmichael coming is very, very important. Also, Carmichael being born in Trinidad is important because this showed kind of the global nature of black power. And Carmichael came to them actually giving them a direct message that was not necessarily liked by some of the leadership, uh, Julius Nerere in particular, that black faces in high places does not liberation and black power make, 
right? And so he comes with a deep criticism coming from the context of the Caribbean, Trinidad, Jamaica, places like this that would eventually, in, in Jamaica's case, one year later, ban Walter Rodney, but that were still steeped in a colonial thinking and still geared toward the colony, the mother country, Britain in, in some of their cases, right? So he's important in this period because, A, he brings uh, frontline missives and information of what's happening in the Black Power Revolution in the United States to Africans and the continent. Two, he really internationalizes the race question because what ends up happening is people have always said, and particularly these white Marxist scholars and academics, they generally have always felt that black power they don't really see a point for it in most of continental Africa, with an exception of maybe South Africa, because they feel, well, if the majority of people are black, then what does black power mean? Because they narrowly understand black power as like, you know, black advancement or like a narrow cultural nationalist vision. But Carmichael understood it to be and communicated it as, and I think accurately communicated it as, a complete revolutionary theory of liberation. I'm talking about cultural, culture, class anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, straight through. He critiques a number of African leaders who sold out black radicals, particularly Amois Chombe and Mobutu, and what was then now Zaire for what they did to Lumumba. And he continues to go down the list of other African leaders who had been selling out to imperialism. So he brings that to the table from a black power perspective. Four, he really was talking about the cultural trap that even the University of Dar es Salaam at the time, which was a premier institution at that time, itself still was grappling with being modeled off of a European university model. And so he begins to critique that also as well as talking about we need to begin to reimagine some of these things differently. We have a cultural revolution in the university. And many students were very inspired by that, as well as many faculty were inspired by, by that. And then I would say, fifthly, what was also important is that he was very blunt about some of the African liberation movements. And I think that was where he gets in trouble a little bit. He maybe could have been more tactful with what he was saying, but, and he also himself had a certain unrealistic imagination of what the African liberation movements looked like in 1967. In 67, they are not what they would be in the later 70s, for example. But he he had to call that out because the issue was a lot of their propaganda to, to black Americans was they were doing all these things, they were doing all this, all that, and that was actually not the case for most of them. Most of them were struggling at the time, and he just felt that people should just be honest about this and not to project things that are not true at the time. So I think those contributions he makes when he's there had reverberations, which is why I push it to 1973, but not only reverberations as like an external coming inside, it spoke to what people themselves were already saying. If you also know earlier, uh, James Foreman, he speaks a little earlier at this UN conference in Zambia, and he also is critical. He also brings black power to the table, and he says black power is critical for Africa because it is imbued with a class consciousness, and it is something that's revolutionary and anti-imperialist, and he was not, it was not liked him saying that by some of the Zambian authorities, although some Zambian authorities did like what he said in the UNIP. So let me just close it with that then. So let's get a little deeper into the reaction of these African revolutionaries to what Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael, is telling them. Didn't some of them feel, well, what is this young man from the United States trying to tell us we're engaged in armed struggle, and there is not an armed struggle in 1967 in the United States. The Black Panther Party had just been born in late 1966. Yes, so this is where things get interesting, right? So here's what my article tries to do, and I, I, it's tricky what I have to do. is very, very tricky, but life is tricky, right? Nothing is clear-cut. So let's say it like this. Broadly, from my research, he actually had a positive reaction. 
from many of the liberation movements and broadly on both sides. And people know the Sino-Soviet split is happening at this point. So basically you have movements that are supported by the USSR and movements that are supported by the Chinese. Each of them are saying which one is more radical. Generally those that were more black nationalists, African nationalists were supported by the Chinese and generally those who were more willing to speak on and to embrace more of a Marxist-Leninist class line or under the USSR. And that's a broad division, and we can go deeper into that if people want. Frilimo, actually, and Eduardo Monlane, who is in the USSR camp, you would say, he was open to what Carmichael was saying. A number of TANU, the Tanganyika African National Union, that was the ruling party in, in Tanzania. Many of them actually were open to what he was saying. Abdul Rahman Babu, Babu, very important figure, friend of Malcolm X, and later friend of Toki Carmichael, was openly in support of what Carmichael was saying. The Pan-Africanist Congress, of uh, later of Azania, but the Pan-Africanist Congress was in support of what he was saying. ZANU was in support of what he was saying. I wasn't able to find anything about ZAPU, Zimbabwean African People's Union. I wasn't able to find anything about them. But SWAPU, SWAPU, particularly out of the branch out of Egypt, was very supportive of what Carmichael was saying, particularly after King's um, assassination, we'll get to in a little bit. But most of them were in support of what he was saying. The issue came mostly with the African National Congress of South Africa. At this point, the ANC is struggling for legitimacy in ways. And because when Carmichael landed, Piero Gliesas, he writes this book on Cuba's involvement in the African liberation movement. He had a little line in his book that I've been trying to track down, that Carmichael, when he was in Guinea, Conakry, before he went to Tanzania, he sent a bunch of letters to the African liberation movement asking to join their struggles, to be able to sign up, to join with them, right? He gets no response back except from the PAC, from David Sibiko. David Sibiko is a very important Pan-Africanist Congress comrade who was killed later on by the South Africans. And so when he lands, he's mostly hanging out with David Sibiko and a young Yoweri Museveni. People don't know this, actually. He was hanging out with these cats initially, and particularly Sibiko. So the ANC, I presume, given their intense rivalry with the PAC, they felt that he was mimicking a PAC position, and he felt that Carmichael's comments were coming after them directly because Carmichael was talking about, you guys are out here asking for aid, you're living a better life in the cities than your guerrillas, you're not in the countries fighting with your people. We can't really respect this, right? Because Carmichael's coming from the front lines of SNCC, and while, yes, they were not about they did not have an armed struggle. If you look at Umoja's book, We Will Shoot Back, there was a concept called armed self-defense. And so all of them were in the grassroots. And say what you want to say about King. King was oftentimes in the grassroots. Now, granted, the cameras were rolling, but he was on the front lines, right? And so he could not understand why some of these leaders were not in the front lines with their people. So the ANC took that, I think, personally, and so they responded. Well, we are working with a hindsight of 50 years. I want to mention that uh, Chris Honey was assassinated in South Africa. And you mentioned Joweri Museveni. He went on to become the president of Uganda. He was Ronald Reagan's favorite African and has been a cat's paw, a proxy for U.S. policy in Africa for oh, the last several decades. Yes, but Museveni is always interesting with us, right? Because Museveni was very radical at the university. Walter Rodney and him worked incredibly closely together at the University of Dar es Salaam. And when you read 
Yoveri Museveni's own autobiography, he mentions that him and Walter Rodney were similar in they agreed on everything except for religion. Museveni was always a little bit more religious than Rodney. But at that time, when he's a university student, Museveni is a revolutionary. He is directly inspired by Frilimo. He's able to go to some of the front lines, liberated territories from Frilimo. Throughout the 70s, he was agitating in Tanzania for a more radical government in Uganda. And initially, when he comes into power, despite what Ronald Reagan was saying, Museveni was good at balancing some of these things. He was considered one of the, the new revolutionaries until we finally saw what his true intent and colors were. But in that late 1960s, 70s period, he is most definitely a revolutionary, which, as we know, is not unusual. I mean, we have Eldridge Cleaver who begins in a certain way, then he comes back and then he becomes a Republican. We have Awusa Sadukai, right, who also has a certain kind of a revolutionary beginning, and then he eventually also goes a certain kind of way. So this is not I think, unusual from in the black radical tradition, right? But um, I think at that time, him being connected with Museveni is important because he was radical at that particular point in time, no question. In 1994, when one man, one vote comes to South Africa, a great compromise was in fact put into action, one whose ramifications become more and more clear every year today with the African National Congress basically taking the position that there will be no economic transformation. Yes. And this is what Stokely Carmichael was saying, right? And so part of my research and my writing on the African liberation movements and black power is to argue that in most of your histories on the African liberation movement, you'll have roughly three rough, broad arguments or schools of literature that you'll have. You'll have the Marxist-Leninist reading of things. Generally, what they'll say is that, you know, because the African liberation movements didn't take class seriously enough, things failed, right? Um, that's what they'll say. They dismiss black power. They dismiss black nationalism. Outside of usefulness is here and there, but mostly that, that's where they fall. Unfortunately, of the three, they're going to give you probably the best history, though, on the African liberation movement, because many of them were in support of the African liberation movement. The second you'll get is mostly some of your directly opposite, your right-wing writings, those directly backed by the CIA, directly backed by right-wing conservative forces. And they give you the skewed view of the African liberation movement as these terrorist organizations trying to kill all the white people, trying to like, you know, destroy these countries who are all tribalists, blah, 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 blah. You have that being the second. Your third one that you will get that's now more emerging is, I'm going to say, kind of a blend of the first two, although at times it leans toward the second. But what's happening is in the post-independent moment, you're finding more critical histories of the African liberation movements that came into power. So you're seeing them from the gift of hindsight, you know, 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years later, able to write a little bit more critical histories. And some lean to the left, but most of them kind of argue, well, you know, Mugabe was corrupt because he was corrupt because he was corrupt, which for me is a completely useless argument to say that, right? Or to say, well, it's just tribalism. It's tribalism, 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 right? I mean, there's no analysis of global capital. There's no analysis of imperialism. There's no analysis of the capitalist world economy, right? But this is kind of what their general argument would be. Some will give you, indeed, because of this the gift of hindsight, they have more detail. They'll give you much more critical things, et cetera, et cetera. But part of what I want to argue is that if we to go back to this point, what really is lost is this black power critique that is not in foreign export. It is within the African liberation movement. And from that point, it often gets conflated with like a Trotskyist position, wanting all the revolution right now. But what they were saying was very important because Carmichael is saying, listen, I'm coming from the Caribbean. We have Eric Williams, who was considered a radical in the 1940s and 50s, who writes Capitalism and Slavery, right? We have Eric Williams, who eventually would come into power. These cats are not doing anything, anything different. 
Rodney would deliver a similar critique also, which is why I put Rodney in the article as well, because Rodney coming out of Guyana and dealing with Forbes Burnham and these cats, he's also delivering a similar critique. And Carmichael also is giving the critique, because remember, where does black power emerge, right? It emerges because, okay, we've got civil rights legislation passed. We've got the Voting Rights Act passed. Now what? We have desegregated schools legally. Now what? You have to have implementation. You have some black leaders who are able to rise, your Andrew Youngs, et cetera, et cetera, your John Lewis's, et cetera. But what have they actually done? What are they actually going to do, right? And black power saw what was happening and began to critique things immediately then. I mean, it begins to emerge. And that was what one of the warnings were to some of the African liberation movements that was not necessarily heard by the leadership. I think the grassroots understood this and key leaders did, but they did not. And to your point, in 1994 South Africa, let's just call it what it is. That was a straight sellout position. And some of us who come from the black consciousness tradition of Steve Biko and them, which is what my book is about, we see it as a complete capitulation to imperialism and white supremacy, completely. Because the ANC was unwilling to, to deal with a civil war at that time, which was going to have to happen. How after these white people kill Chris Hani, murder him in his backyard, the top MK commander, they shoot him, you guys still are trying to push for peace. That was Dr. Toivi Ashiki speaking from Vassar College. Rudo Mudiwa is a PhD in communications and culture and currently a research fellow at Princeton University. Mudiwa is a native of Zimbabwe and is critical of how the black government that replaced white rule treated black women. Dr. Mudiwa wrote a recent article titled, Stop the Woman, Save the State, Policing, Order, and the Black Woman's Body. Overall, my work is really interested in looking at how colonial spatial logics are reproduced in the post-independence nation-state. And I'm arguing that black women are usually the vectors of this kind of process. So we have, you know, especially Zimbabwe was a white settler colonial state that had a particular uh, spatial logic that was, you know, about having these white cities and towns that relied on black migrant labor, black male migrant labor, and oftentimes that meant keeping women out of those towns and cities because women were supposed to stay in the village. And there was a certain kind of spatial logic, but there was also a temporal logic to that. And it was the idea that blackness ought to be confined to the village, which is the site of the past, that black people are sort of these subjects who have not entered history yet. So in order to keep the colonial machine turning, you have to keep them in the villages because that is sort of the natural site of blackness, right? This ancient civilizational past. And so that meant that women had to stay in the villages to reproduce, right? They're reproducing more laborers. So there's a lot of work that's been done about the sort of gendered nature of colonial administration, how it relies upon the system that keeps women out of cities so that they can reproduce more laborers who then funnel back into this this machine that's turning. And so one of the most influential books on this topic, and, and especially the idea of sex work as being a form of mobility that disrupts this binary, um, Louise White's The Comforts of Home. Um, and then you also have Glenn Elder, who wrote this book. He uses the term heterospatiality, where he's thinking about how colonial migrant labor really relied on this idea of heterosexual reproduction, which meant keeping black women in the villages. And so for me, as a student, when I was a student, I kept wondering, well, what happens to this system when you then have independence, right? And the idea that independence means that black people can now move, right? 
Black people can come into the cities and their migration is not restricted under the terms of this colonial migrant labor system. Or ostensibly, that is one of the promises of independence, that Black people have the right, have the freedom of movement. And in fact, in Zomba's constitution, that is mentioned. Freedom of movement is now enshrined in how we think of the post-independence nation-state. But of course, the Black woman is still a problem. And you see this constantly in the new nation-state, that Black women still pose a problem to this ostensibly new state because their bodies are not bodies that belong in urban space. Their bodies disturb urban space. And so my work really comes from thinking about how when you have a new state, there are still colonial logics that are operating, announced and unannounced, that are shaping what's happening to the construction, to the maintenance of urban space. So how did the new regime in Zimbabwe mask the fact that it was reproducing elements of the old colonial order? Well, when you go to the archives, they don't really mask it very much. I spent a lot of time looking at old parliamentary records, and I have a chapter of my book in progress, where they are having debates in parliament about what do they do with these Rhodesian laws that were meant to repress nationalist mobilization, right? There are all these different laws that, you know, allow them to detain people, allow them to suppress due process rights, allow them to do mass arrests, right? These are all Rhodesian white supremacist laws. And when the Mugabe government comes in, they had obviously, during the revolution, they had said, you know, these laws are racist, which, correct, they were absolutely racist. And then when they come in, they really have a quandary because they start to find some of these laws very useful. And one of the ways that these laws are useful is that they help ZANU-PF, which is the ruling party that Robert Mugabe is in the head of at Independence, they help them to suppress any opposition. So the main opposition party... ZAPU, which is run by Joshua Nkomo, is effectively wiped out in the first three years of Zimbabwe's independence through the use of these laws, right? They detain a lot of the leadership, they arrest them on spurious grounds, and eventually these laws are used against women. And in my work, I really focus on how these policing laws are used to detain women for the crime of prostitution, which really speaks to the fact that women are not seen as legitimate subjects in urban space. So you start to see these mass arrests of women. The biggest one happens in 1983, and it's a policing campaign called Operation Cleanup, and they are arrests over 6,000 women for prostitution. And during this period of crisis in the 21st century, you write that women were virtually banned from the streets after dark by these draconian police policies. Correct. And that, I mean, that's a turn of phrase that I think an activist uses, right, that there's effectively a curfew. And of course, the realities on the ground are usually much more complex, right? People are still going out. People would go out. But then what a key function of the how these laws are used is that the enforcement of them is entirely arbitrary. So what often happens is that during holidays, during, let's say, New Year's Eve, right, you'll start to see police ramp up these kind of campaigns. So there might be a time when everyone is going out freely and that kind of thing, and then New Year's Eve will hit or Christmas, and then police will suddenly have 
a mass sweep in which people will be detained. Or it may be just that you run across a police officer who wants to feel powerful and he'll harass you and your young friends. So I interviewed women and they would you know, tell these stories of how they'd be walking to the grocery store at dusk. So it's not even particularly dark and the police officer would stop them and say, isn't your skirt a little too short? And then that would be the pretext on which you would be detained or oftentimes actually, it's a way for them to get bribes. I think one way that the new order actually carries out the old order but masks itself is in what you write about, the invocation of African culture as being under internal threat and therefore justifying these kinds of police actions. Yes, absolutely. And I think the question of African culture in the post-independent state is so important because Obviously, for a lot of anti-colonial figures, there was an attempt to recover something that had been lost. And of course, we recognize this impulse across the Black diaspora, that we are all marked by a particular kind of loss, and that for a lot of people, their politics emanates from this attempt to recover what has been lost. And of course, we've had, there are significant critiques of that impulse, and the one that I always gesture to is the Fanonian critique, that when you try to recover something that has been lost and you try to do that under the terms of an African culture, I think he says that all you are doing, you are grasping for fragments, right? Because these things are lost. And so the actual revolutionary thing to do is to build something new and to build something new with the people. Now, for me, oftentimes what happens is that the attempt to recover the lost thing is done on the backs of black women's bodies, right? And I think this also happens across the black diaspora. So for me, I'm thinking about how in the early days of independence and as you have this nationalist government, certainly one of the ways that the government then tries to build a sense of national cohesion is by articulating this idea of African culture that relies on women who are servile, and who are not transgressing in particular ways. And again, I want to be nuanced here because there was also a very, very strong feminist orientation to the government because, and I just had a conversation with some of my colleagues about this, Zimbabwe in the 1980s is such an interesting place, right? Because it is a, what we would call a late decolonizer. South Africa is the last one, but Zimbabwe is 1980. So it comes 20 years after the very big wave of decolonization. And so a lot of Africans gravitate to Zimbabwe because it is a site of promise and it is a way for them to recover the promise that their own governments have squandered by this point. And so because of that, there are a lot of leftists, a lot of socialists, a lot of Marxists, a lot of feminists, what were then called third world feminists, who go to Zimbabwe. And so there's a lot of radical activity that's happening in the state in the early years. And so what I try to capture is is that these articulations of African culture are not going uncontested, right? The government isn't just saying, well, this is what culture should be. Right? You have a lot of women who are writing, who are progressive, right? You have, for example, Patricia McFadden, who was an intellectual at the time, who was living in Zimbabwe, and she was writing both academic but also in the popular press. You have Rudo Gaizanwa, who was a lecturer at the University of Zimbabwe, who was also an intellectual, and her work was in newspapers and things like that. So you have... I would say a very visible, radical presence in the state that is contesting all of these things at the same time. 
So it's not a sort of cartoonish figure of this nationalist government doing these things uncontested, but really, I think, a quite vibrant debate over what decolonization should look like. And part of that has really been lost, and I would say in Zimbabwe. I don't think a lot of people actually know that the 1980s were such an intellectually vibrant time. And as a young Zimbabwean myself, I didn't know this history. So part of my own work is about writing this history and also making it accessible, because I think that it teaches us a lot about what we could do in terms of our own present struggle. And of course, we cannot speak of Zimbabwe and the actions of the state and the ruling party without pointing out that Zimbabwe has been targeted for massive sanctions by the Western powers, which have resulted in catastrophic rates of inflation. Right. And, you know, I think it's really the issue of sanctions is one that I think is often very misunderstood, both in and outside of Zimbabwe. And right now, part of the reason actually why I'm interested in writing the history of the 1980s and the the, the vibrancy of the left during that time, and it was a, a very transnational left, right? You had socialists from Kenya, prominent socialists, I think Shadrick Guto was his name, who was a lecturer at the University of Zimbabwe. A lot of people who were really thinking critically about the new state were there. And I only say that to say that sanctions now seem to be an issue that a lot of people who consider themselves progressive in Zimbabwe really rally behind. And I always have a lot of pause when we as Zimbabweans advocate for sanctioning our own country, in part because we know that sanctions don't work. They do not discourage bad behavior, right? They punish actually civilian populations, and there's been a lot of robust research on this. But I think also, to me, sanctions, advocating for sanctions in this particular moment shows a resignation of the left. It shows that you are ceding your own power to actually transform your country, and you are now calling on these other powers to intervene in ways that you shouldn't, because these powers don't actually have the moral authority to do that. So for me, I always think about it in terms of, is this tool a useful tool for the kinds of goals that you have? And disheartens me that for a lot of people who consider themselves progressive, they continue to advocate for this as a useful tool. And I think also that has to do with a lot of those people being embedded in NGOs, right? And NGOs having a kind of neoliberal function in Africa and being part of this matrix they are connected to the State Department here and, you know, the British government. So they're not necessarily neutral actors. But I think part of recovering the vibrancy of the kinds of movements that we saw in the 80s is being critical about your use of these kinds of tools and actually thinking about what you get out of them and what they impede. For me, I think they actually impede organizing in your own country because now you are seeing yourselves as beneficiaries of Western benevolence, and you're not actually organizing your own people and having conversations with people in your own state. So I approach it from that angle. What are you seeding when you see sanctions as a solution to what are actually quite brutal conditions? And I think that it's important to say that people are advocating for sanctions because they think that they're going to ameliorate these conditions. And again, we know that they don't, but two, that you are seeding very important ground. And that's what I want to highlight. 
Yes, calling upon the former colonial master and his allies to discipline your own state is a kind of national betrayal. Yes, yes. And I, I mean, I tend to have some sympathy for people who think that, in part because I think it comes out of not knowing. It doesn't come out of a sort of nefarious plotting. And I also want to speak and be critical of my own location, right? I am a Zimbabwean who is now in the U.S. Academy. I live primarily in America. So I think that when you make this critique to people who live there, they might say, well, you don't know how bad it is here. You don't live here full time. You come here on holidays and you, know, you come here for research trips. But we live under these conditions of extreme impoverishment, of brutal police harassment. Now it's essentially a military government. So you don't understand why we want to tell the U.K. government to intervene or the U.S. government to intervene. And I think that conversation is one that is always worth having with people to say the conditions are bad. This government is an incredibly repressive government, but sanctions not only worsen that, but then you're ceding important ground when you appeal to Western governments to save you from this catastrophe. Now, every country has its own particularities, but you say that this anti-woman kind of governance is not limited to Zimbabwe, and that you see manifestations of the same pathologies in other countries in Africa. Yes, and again, I think this is a legacy of colonial administration. So in my work, I try to be very careful about tracking how colonial administration is reproduced in post-independence countries. And so when you see this obsession with policing access to the city, that is a hallmark of colonial administration, where, of course, the sort of icon of this form of policing is the passbook, where black people in a number of settler colonial states had to carry a book that said who they were, but also indicated who they were employed by, which meant that they could be in the city because they were selling their labor to a white person. So once you have space that relies on determining who is the right subject and who can have access to the space, that doesn't just go away because you have signed a constitution that now says that we have black majority rule. That has to be intentionally disrupted and deconstructed. You have to break that apart. And the problem is that nobody intentionally broke that apart. So you have this system still operating under black governments. And oftentimes the targets remain the same. Sex workers are remain targets, but oftentimes it's the urban poor who live on the margins of the city who are often targets. And under colonial laws, they were often called vagrants, this kind of ambiguous legal category that could basically mark any black person who was wandering around. Loitering is a crime that black people are often arrested for, right? The idea that black people who are not laboring are inherently criminal. So you still have these laws and these ideologies about space operating under black majority governments because people did not intentionally take apart, break apart these systems. And so for me, I think I ultimately want to argue that we have not finished the project of decolonization. And I always argue this in my work because that project really rests on remaking space so that black people can lay claim to it, right? And that not only requires 
expropriating land that in a lot of, at least Southern African countries, still is in the possession of white minorities or multinational companies, but also in urban space that requires not only changing how space is governed, and that means, first and foremost, attacking policing, which is one way that space continues to be managed through essentially colonial policing tactics. So that is my focus, right? How do we actually fulfill the promise of decolonization and bring it to fruition? Because I don't write from a place of cynicism, right? As a young Zimbabwean, when I go into the archives and I read all of the documents that were produced in the 20th century, when you read manifestos and speeches, I am really moved by that because the promise of that was so great. And the way that people fought for that, people paid mightily for those promises. And I want to see them fulfilled. And I think we can do that, but we have not done that yet. That was Dr. Rudo Mudiwa speaking from Princeton University. In the years after World War II, sex was the big topic of discussion among pro-independence activists in the Dutch Caribbean colonies of Aruba and Curaçao. City University of New York history professor Chelsea Field has studied this era and written a book titled Offshore Attachments, Oil and Intimacy After Empire. We at Black Agenda Report had never heard of a colonial struggle in which sexual issues, including prostitution, played such an important role. Same here, and it was actually my surprise at that discovery, uh, looking through really three prominent leftist organizations in the Dutch Antilles, to see that sex emerged repeatedly in their arguments for decolonization, for economic liberation and socialism, and also for racial justice. And so figuring out why and how sex became this really important touch point for achieving those goals is the goal of this article and locating it as well in this broader Caribbean a climate where discussions on revolutionary gender roles and sexuality are circulating. And you seem to have concluded that the influence of the so-called mother country, the colonial country, the Netherlands, had a lot to do with the conversations that young leftists were having in places like Curaçao. That's right. And it, it influences places like Curaçao, maybe somewhat indirectly. I think that we often have the tendency to assume that debates about gender and sexuality emerged in the global north, which the Netherlands was certainly still is a part, and that the global north is this kind of bastion of gender and sexual progressivism. And certainly many of the Antillean leftists that feature in this article studied in the Netherlands. They're exposed to the rebellious atmosphere in European universities in the 1960s. But what I'm also trying to show in that article is that these discussions also arose in the global South, and often with their own inflections and political commitments. So it's not just a European discourse that is influencing these people. In fact, I would say that in many ways, their visions of sexual liberation are actually quite distinct from the discourse that played out in Europe in the 1960s. Uh, if we look at new left groups, for example, in, in France or in, in West Germany, yes, those, those students, too, were graffitiing walls that said, you know, the more I make love, the more I make revolution. And that old adage, you know, make love, not war, really communicated this idea that sex and violence were 
incompatible, right? So if you're having sex, you're not going to make war. If you are making war, by extension, that means you're not having a lot of sex. In the Caribbean, among discussions of leftist groups, that position really wasn't tenable at all because people felt in their daily lives and in their family heritage that sex and violence were, in fact, deeply compatible. So as one commentator in the 1960s said, you know, that there was a lot of forceful um, sexual violation of enslaved people and people of African descent. And so this ubiquitous compatibility between pleasure and violence was actually what made sex so acutely politicized for these actors and why it was so urgent to reclaim sexuality as a vital aspect of self-determination. Well, of course, there were many more influences on the people in the Dutch Antilles than just the Dutch. Cuba, not far away. That's exactly right. Cuba became a really important reference point for Antillean leftists, as it did for many leftists throughout the world. But when we think about Cuban influence, we're often thinking about the kind of bearded guerrilla warrior and Cuban contributions to armed insurgency throughout the decolonizing world. And that is an important part of the story, but it's also a masculinist representation of the revolution. And what many researchers are seeing now is that gender and sexual politics were actually extremely central to Cuba's internationalism. And so the idea of the new socialist man or the new socialist woman spread along with the promise of the Cuban revolution in the global South. And so, you know, even the Panthers to the North in the 1970s are writing about the new black man and the new black woman. And so these conversations about redefining revolutionary gender roles was key, was key to Cuba's influence globally. And on Curacao, Cuba emerges in really unique ways. These revolutionary traditions are touching down on Curacao and adapting to really local circumstances. So one of the key issues for Antillean leftists on Curacao was the question of sex work. And this emerges because the oil industry is really tanking on Curacao. You know, Curacao is a, it's a small island, 35 miles north of Venezuela. It had a population of about 140,000 people in the 1960s. And for a long time, Curacao was completely reliant on the oil refining industry owned by Shell. So there's a total dominance of, of foreign capital and in the insular economy there. Uh, but by the 1960s, that oil industry is, I mean, being gutted. Automation is, is replacing the work of laborers. And what Antillean authorities hoped to do, like so many other Caribbean islands, was to move Curacao to an economic model that was reliant on tourism. And so Antillean leftists are looking to Cuba to say, here's a successful model of a socialist revolution that not only kicked out U.S. imperialism and the U.S. tourist industry, but they also claim that they've managed to eradicate sex work as a result of that revolution. And so Antillean leftists were inspired by this idea, not least because the last time there was a really large presence of U.S. men on the island was in World War II, when U.S. soldiers came by the thousands to safeguard the oil refining industry and to cater to the itinerant bachelor population that found itself on Curacao at that time. 
the late colonial government actually established this large open-air brothel called Campo Alegre. It's still there. It's still the world's largest open-air brothel. And so this was thought to be a really peculiar institution that related to U.S. imperialism. And Antillian leftists worried that if Curacao shifted to an economic model reliant on tourism, that sex work, commercial sex work would increase. But they were also quite divided about whether or not sex work was a kind of inherently repressive uh, aspect of sexual life or if it could actually be a liberating feature. And if they had a successful socialist revolution, if that revolution could actually redeem sex work and raise it to a level of, of dignified work like any other. Fast forward as sexual tourism triumphed in Curacao. Yes, it has. Curacao is, is definitely one of the more popular sex tourist destinations in the Caribbean, and Campo Alegre is still at the center of that. And what's fascinating and what really drew a lot of attention from the commentators that I look at in this article is that Campo Alegre, the brothel that was created in 1949, it recruited with the support of the late colonial police and the government, it recruited exclusively light-skinned sex workers from the Dominican Republic and Colombia because island authorities argued that black women would be undesirable to U.S. soldiers and to refinery workers and to the thousands of other sailors who were coming onto Curacao shores. And so they said that they needed to protect the chastity of local white womanhood who were presumed to have honor by making available the sexuality of light-skinned women from elsewhere in the Caribbean region. And so that contributed to a system that still exists on Curacao today. Now, local women, predominantly Afro-Curacaoan women, are allowed to work in that brothel. But for many decades, they were excluded. And Antillian commentators in the 1960s wrote a lot of different articles about how racism played out in that space of commercial sex work. That's fascinating. Were these conversations about race and sex and gradations of race carried out in full public view and as part of the discourse of the country? Well, that's an interesting question. On Aruba, which is a neighboring island to Curacao, also under Dutch sovereignty, there were similar debates about whether or not a brothel should be opened to serve U.S. soldiers and refinery workers, because Standard Oil owned a refinery on Aruba. And Aruba claimed as its heritage, like largely Mestiza heritage, and they viewed themselves in a position of economic and political subordinates to Curacao, which was perceived as a, a racialized threat. I mean, the, the definition of an Aruban identity was really articulated in an anti-Blackness. And so as this model of creating a brothel purely for foreign workers, sailors, and soldiers, as that moved from Curacao to Aruba, a bunch of local women caught wind of these plans and protested vehemently in what was really the first mass mobilization of the post-colonial age. So the Antillean Islands don't fully decolonize in the normative model. They are not independent even to this day. They remain in a commonwealth with the Netherlands. 
so when I say that this is the first protest of the post-colonial age, I mean the protest wherein people are exercising newfound rights to mobilize in the public sphere and to hold their officials to account because those officials are now elected. And so interestingly, sex was also at the center of these mobilizations and racialized depictions of sexuality because what these self-described Aruban housewives feared was that Afro-Curacaoan women would move to Aruba since they were kicked out of the brothel on Curacao and that they would then take residence on Aruba. And that was something that Aruba, who was trying to portray itself as a whitened and sexually restrained island, was not willing to tolerate. So these, these debates absolutely bled into the public sphere. Since the Dutch Antilles still have not achieved real independence, could one conclude that this fixation with sexual politics slowed the process, or is that an incorrect assessment? Well, I think that sexual politics serve a variety of political agendas in the Dutch kingdom, as it's known. We can see that sexual politics have served really repressive aims that have tried to extend and exercise forms of foreign dominance, whether from the Netherlands or from U.S. European capital. So certainly these brothels and the kind of peculiar formation of transnational sex worker recruitment in all its racialized dimensions, this was absolutely thought to aid in the acceleration of the age of oil and and the new modern energy sector that was fueling global capitalism. And for many people that, I mean, now we look to the Antilles, that industry is dead and it has left a lot of ruins in its wake. We've also seen, though, that sex could be central to liberationist arguments. And that is certainly the history that I try to illuminate in this article, that sex became a really creative way for trying to think through how to end this stranglehold of Euro-American imperialism in the region, as well as anti-Black racism. But more recently, we've again see these debates play out in the issue of same-sex marriage, where Dutch officials have, to this day, continued to cast the islands as sexually regressive, and therefore in need of increased intervention and oversight from Europe, which is ostensibly more sexually liberal and progressive, right? And so that argument, I think, what it really serves to do is to render incompatible the goals of sexual progressivism and anti-imperialism. And what I'm hoping to show in this article is that there is this Caribbean-rooted tradition that saw sexual progressivism not as some European import, although some people certainly tried to smear it that way, especially people who were hostile to the agenda, but actually as something that was foundational to anti-imperialism and that emerged through these conversations about the Cuban revolution and drawing as well on the language and imagery of black power. You base much of your article on your study of three leftist publications in the Dutch Antilles. Is that conversation still going on? And where are those people now in terms of the political life of their country? So what's fascinating is that the struggle for independence definitely doesn't die with this movement. There is this massive uprising in in 1969, as I write about, 
but one that was much more focused on actually ending, I would say, the dominance of foreign capital. It was less explicitly concerned with achieving independence from the Netherlands, although that is part of the conversation. And I think that attunes us to the the multiplicity of visions of decolonization in the Caribbean, as also in French West Africa, for example, there were people like Amé Césaire of Martinique who tried to say that there could be this way of decolonizing without independence, that a kind of inclusion in a commonwealth formation, if done correctly, and if the redistributive mechanisms of those commonwealths were robust, could actually achieve a kind of transformed meaning of self-determination. Now, Césaire and, and others who argued for that model were disillusioned with what played out. And in the Dutch kingdom of today, that's certainly the case, that the current arrangement sparks very little feelings of joy or inspiration. But at the same time, there have been movements for independence, but never kind of majority movements for independence. And so I think we can shift our gaze a little bit to think about how people come in and out of these ideas of embracing independence. Yarimar Bonilla has called this, this the idea of strategic entanglement, that at times in the non-sovereign Caribbean, arguments become very popular for independence, but then people can retreat and they can forge other zones of autonomy. So, you know, there are certainly pro-independence groups. There was a notable politician on Curaçao who wanted the end of Dutch oversight and who also notably wanted to kick the U.S. Southern Command out of Curaçao and airspace. His name was Helmut Diels, and he was actually assassinated in 2013, and there are still lingering questions about what led to that. But there are other people, you know, especially active in movements for sexual rights, who have tried to form different kinds of coalitions with people of the Antillean diaspora in the Netherlands to argue for a more robust vision of racial and sexual equality within a kingdom framework, within a commonwealth framework. So these opinions are extremely varied. And what's interesting is that, you know, sex actually matters to those visions of freedom even today. We've talked a lot about the Dutch influence on its colonial citizens in the Caribbean, but black power is seen as largely an American invention. Tell us about the influence that that had on places like Carousel. So black power was hugely influential in the Caribbean. There are organized black power movements in multiple islands, including notably you know, Trinidad in 1970, right after this. Uh, uprising on Curaçao in 1969. And Antillean leftists were not organized in a black power movement. This was not an organized black power movement, but there was a lot of inspiration drawn from the language and imagery of black power. And so, you know, black power is often represented as a kind of bastion of patriarchy, especially within the Black Panther Party. And that's part of the demonization of the black power movement at the same time that it was also a site of contestation within the movement. And so the key point is that there was a tremendous diversity of opinions and experimentations within the BPP on issues of women's liberation and erotic freedom. Now, on Curaçao and among the Antillean diaspora in the Netherlands, black power really provided a language for leftist women to scrutinize the movement itself and to grapple with internalized racism among their comrades. 
So maybe the most remarkable thing that followed from this was that there was a lot of writing done to try to form and re-educate a new kind of revolutionary masculinity that wasn't predicated on, you know, what some scholars have called the vigorous revindication of black manhood, but that it was a masculinity that stressed mutuality and intimacy, emotional sharing and availability with one's partner. And so the fact that leftists did not just align themselves with this idea, but that they took it even further and made their struggle also about the acceptance of non-normative desires, including same-sex desire for men, that's what makes this discourse really, really different from what's happening in Cuba and elsewhere in the Caribbean. And so that's one of the facets of this story that really interests me. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.